traditionally some of the questions that people were meditating about when they were trying to achieve something in their practice, uh, mentioned in the Edward Kahn's piece, and that goes back to the 1880s or 90s, uh, was um, questions like, what is truth? What is the meaning of my life? How to prioritize my endeavors? One of the big questions, of course, also people come uh, to their spiritual practice with is uh, along the lines of uh, perhaps who am I? Or how can I really get to know myself? And there's always this point in uh, the spiritual life where we stumble across the Buddha's teaching of anatta. If you haven't stumbled across it as of yet, it's uh, one of the Buddha's observations that the idea of a lasting, permanent inner identity, a, a sort of a me that sits behind all of my thoughts, uh, a kind of core self that is global and lasting and present through my life uh, is in fact an illusion that uh, in fact if we, if we observe very closely the stream of thoughts and feelings and mind states, moods, body states, perceptions that occur in our life, we begin to stumble across this great realization that there is nothing in there that is profoundly, unchangingly me. In one sutta, the Buddha said, just as a dog tied by a leash to a post circles around the post and gets nowhere, the spiritually uninvolved person circles around self and uh, views of identity. And in the Panchavagi, he says, neither body nor feelings nor thoughts nor perceptions nor uh, consciousness can provide any lasting self. And yet, at the same time, in the canon, in the Buddhist teachings, there are very numerous mentions of self as being something that should be protected, looked after, cared for. In the Savasava, the self is listed as that which experiences our actions. And in the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, the self you construct is your foundation. What else could provide it? Establish one that is secure. Now, how do we explain these divergent views? At some point, it sounds like the Buddha believes there is some core identity lurking behind our thoughts, generating our views and opinions, creating a, a constant thread of identity, a meanness, meanness, not mean. And uh, so. Uh, one way we could explain it is noting that the Buddha did teach two somewhat different paths. Uh, there's Lokiya, which is for 
practitioners who have jobs, households, relationships, families, who are, in other words, not renunciates. And then there's the locatura, which was the path for renunciates. And in the path for householders, lay practitioners, the Buddha really didn't mention very often, if at all, I can't find any mention, that the Buddha taught not-self or the lack of a lasting self to us lay practitioners, most likely because most of us have jobs and responsibilities and we can't go back to our lives and say, well, I have no lasting identity to the people we work with or (laughs) I don't know why you're asking me to do my work. (laughs) There's no thread, no core me. And yet, uh, we are on retreat, and while we're on retreat, it is worthwhile to consider and try to practice some of the teachings and insights that the Buddha presented to renunciates. And what he taught was Sakaya Ditti, as well as Anatta. Sakaya Ditti is that sitting around thinking about who am I really? What's my core personality? Leads to delusion and leads to a kind of uh, globalizing thing where we experience something in our meditation like sadness, frustration, and we think, oh, that's really who I am. It'll never go away. I'm always going to be stuck with this. Because that's kind of what identity building does. It's a a ball and a chain, or like the Buddha said in that sutta, it's like a leash. If I think some attribute is fundamentally me, I'm stuck with it. I really will even give up the idea of noticing when it's not around. I had uh, somebody I worked with for a number of years, until he moved away, and he would uh, call me up at all times and say, uh, Josh, I'm such an angry person. I'm such an angry person. I'm just furious. And uh, eventually I would talk to him and then I would say, well, are you angry right now? And he would say, well, of course I'm not angry right now. I'm talking with you, you know. (laughs) And I would say, well, if you're capable right now of not being angry, that means that's not who you are. It simply means that you have a tendency at times to resort to anger, uh, predilection, a proclivity, but it is not who you are. It is not your core identity. If there are significant times when you're not anxious, neurotic, fearful, angry, sad, goofy, whatever, then it's not who you are. It's simply a trait that you experience. So this is a real important realization. On the one hand, if we try to get rid of the idea that there's no uh, tendencies, that there's no traits, we'll be frustrated because we will, of course, find that we have traits, tendencies, proclivities. We have uh, themes in our lives that arise again and again and again. But... If we try to say that any of those traits, my intellectualism or my 
my sadness or my fear, that's really who I am, then we're also engaging in delusion because those things pass. And then we're not fully opening to all the other parts of ourselves that are just as valid and just as real. So, the Buddha actually did acknowledge this. And he had a wonderful teaching called the Anasayas. And they are what is called the seven underlying traits or subpersonalities. <coughs> now, I don't want you to remember them. So I'm going to say them so fast you won't even have a chance to try to do that because it's a waste of your time. And in fact, whenever we give lists here, I think, oh, it's a total waste of their time because, first of all, there's this thing called the Internet that you can, you can go back and you can look it up. And number two, I don't know in my life of any Buddhist teacher, with the exception of Tan Jeff, whose job it is, who will actually be off the spur of the cuff able to list all of the seven Anasayas. It just, they don't exist. If you asked Noah, he would probably glaze over. <laughs> so, uh, <coughs> so the Anusayas are things like resentments, the resentful traits, the parts of us that seek addictive pleasures and self-doubt and grandiosity parts of us and the parts of us that are really attached to our views and opinions. And then there's the fear and the ingrained habits that we really like. So I hope you forgot them all because <laughs> uh, as you're going to see that I don't believe that, well, I believe that each of us have traits or anusayas or probably for all I know pronounced anusayas. I haven't even heard another Buddhist beside myself actually say it aloud. Um, uh, this is very uh, common theme in contemporary psychology because uh, what psychologists are beginning to see more and more, like the Buddha, is that there is no such thing as a core self. There are, however, sub-personalities that uh, arise in different situations and help us survive. And I'm going to suggest one way of, I'm going to list mine for you. I'm going to completely lay myself bare and introduce you to all the different Joshes that are in there. Uh, they're all equally validly myself. Um, but before I, I do that, um, I should say that these subpersonalities helped us survive different situations in our childhood and in our adult life. And no part of us is ever wrong or bad or evil. Even the part of us that is the addict or the alcoholic or the, the fearful or the neurotic, there is no part of us that is bad. There are, however, parts of us that we have over-relied on at the expense of allowing the other parts of ourselves to flourish and grow and to achieve um, some role in our life. So, some psychologists refer to these parts as... Um, <clears throat> Freud, of course, did the uh, ego 
the id, which was the repository of drives for pleasure and aggression, and the superego was the internalization of your parents and, the, and society that essentially regulated you. Other psychologists use the phrase coping strategies, defense mechanisms, and the repressed. I'm not going to use those terms, so throw them out of your mind. Uh, I like the terms that uh, the psychologist Richard Schwartz uses, which are managers, exiles, and firefighters. I think those are fun. <laughs> so what are the managers? The managers are the sub-personalities in us that help us survive and look good to other people and help us uh, get recognition in the world and have helped us over the years keep the exiles from being known or felt. So, for instance, a young child who grows up inarticulate, uh, barely capable of confidently expressing his uh, emotions, I'm speaking of myself, of course, I would just make it sound vaguely universal, but uh, <laughs> will learn to maybe uh, play an instrument, like I did, as a way to circumvent the awkwardness of, uh, you know, uh, eighth grade, and to uh, <laughs> get, get friends. Uh, and so that ability to play an instrument is a coping strategy or a manager. It helps get acclaim, helps us survive. So the creative uh, personality is one of them. That's a manager. Anything that looks good to other people that helps uh, keep the exiles away from our awareness is a manager. And it's something that we'll rely on a lot. Now what are the exiles? The exiles are any of those experiences or feelings we associate with abandonment, rejection, or wounding at the harm at the hands of other people. So for instance, there's a part of us maybe that really wants to uh, be friendly and sweet and spontaneous, but if we grew up in a family where that was abused or mistreated or where we grew up in a situation where those experiences are not tolerated, then we will associate those uh, behaviors with abandonment and rejection and we will exile those impulses. In my case, uh, growing up in a family of, uh, you know, born right off the boat from Russia, uh, there was certain emotions or sub-personalities or behaviors that were very quickly shown to me to be not safe. One was to express any disappointment with uh, my life or what we, how we lived, because to a family of immigrants that was essentially saying that my parents had done it all wrong. And it was very important for them that their children be seen as very grateful and appreciative of everything, all the time. <laughs> and whenever I showed any disappointment with food, my mom would remind me, improbably, of starving children in Africa, which to me, as a seven-year-old, meant nothing because I had never met any starving children in Africa, but for my parents, any disappointment was considered to be dangerous and had to be immediately uh, dealt with. So I grew up feeling very unsafe 
whenever I would feel disappointed. My father, an active alcoholic, did not model how to feel anger or frustration. That was never safely modeled for me. So when I would feel anger and frustration, I would immediately exile those feelings as well. So I developed a whole host of managers to help keep those exiled feelings. The feelings of uh, anger, the feelings of frustration, the feelings of disappointment with other people. I had to keep exiled. So what did I do? I developed some strategies like the intellectual. (laughs) That's what you're hearing right now. The Buddhist... You know, guy who likes to quote uh, neuroscience and psychology and ancient Buddhist texts makes me feel safe, makes me feel like I won't be rejected, makes me feel uh, like I won't have to feel angry or feelings of disappointment. I feel secure in that this personality that you get to hear right now. Another personality I have is the uh, autobiographer. That's the inner chatter in my brain that tells the story of Josh, the Buddhist teacher, (laughs) hoping to make his life mean something after years of addiction. And then there's the pack animal, the part of me that comes out when I'm not teaching and when I'm with some of my buddies and we just sit around and give each other a hard time. And if I try to be the Buddhist intellectual, then I will be rejected. So I don't want to do that, so I switch one manager, the know-it-all intellectual neurotic Jew from Manhattan, to the, the, you know, the the pack animal guy who sits around, you know, giving his friends a hard time and they give me a hard time. Then there's the worrier, or the planner, I should say, that tries to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And, of course, there's the pleasure seeker. Like, we all have that part of us that just, oh, maybe I'm globalizing, maybe you don't have it. I, I find it so uh, compelling that I assume that all human beings have it, which is the part of me that just wants to watch Netflix and eat ice cream and, and just say, have no responsibilities and not have to deal with anyone and essentially close the door on the world. And uh, so those are some of the various parts of me that come out and they counterbalance and they all, to a certain degree, look good enough to you that I don't have to repress them and I don't have to exile them because I don't believe that any of those parts of me will lead to shunning or, you know, being cast out of the tribe. Now, when all those different managers fail, there's a third quality or third type of subpersonality that comes out, and those are the firefighters. And those are the last-ditch parts of us that come to the rescue when our managers fail and we desperately don't want to feel the wounded child feelings come to the surface. So what are the firefighters? In my case, it's the addict. I simply want to numb myself as quickly as possible. When I was in my 20s, that was somebody who would run to take drugs, as many drugs, as quickly as possible so that I could leave my consciousness and wind somewhere else. As I got sober 20 years ago, it became the absolutely 
mindless consumer, which comes out at times when my managers fail and I wind up buying hoodies I don't need or I wind up you know, buying, I have an array of Bluetooth speakers. <laughs> Bluetooth speakers that any human being rightly needs. And, as a, and so the thing about firefighters is that they're not really that popular with other people. The addict part of us, the rabid shopper, the gambler, I wonder who I'm referring to right now. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the food binger, you know, the part of us that just wants to numb or wants to create pleasure so that we don't have to feel the arising of the repressed, that lonely, sad, angry, those feelings that we don't feel we can hold or if we do feel them, we believe other people will reject us and abandon us. So, if one network or one sub-personality or I'll call it part, if one part of us is burdened with our survival and doesn't ever want to let go, that's when the problems really start. Again, every single part of us, including the addict part in me, came about to help us survive. They were not trying to kill us. They are not evil. There is no part in any of us that is evil, bad, or wrong. What there are, however, is parts that become completely convinced that if we don't let them run the show, we will uh, die. <laughs> we will be abandoned, rejected. We will, if I allow, uh, if I drop my intellectual part, then the emotions that I've been keeping at bay and exiled, the, the sadness or the anger, will come up and will take me over and I'll never be able to get rid of it. So I have to cling to my intellectual part. Or some of us are the, the you know, we, we're very scheduled and busy, always running around, always have to have something to do, because that helps us keep exiled feelings of not being good enough or not accomplishing in life, or the times we were told by our parents that we weren't going to amount to anything, or the feelings of uh, loneliness that we don't want to feel. So we, we become completely attached to the part of us that is scheduled and busy and always needing to accomplish. What happens if we begin to over-rely on any one part. It becomes almost deformed because it doesn't anymore have a natural check telling us to go into our other parts. For example, the intellectual Josh, if I don't switch that off, it turns into the complete know-it-all that's grandiose, arrogant, and has no time for anybody else's views and opinions. I've had it happen. <laughs> None of you would be familiar with it, but it's, it has happened. Uh, uh, so, then there's the uh, producer, which is 
the part of me that has to constantly produce stuff to try to keep New York Dharma punks uh, visible. But if I go into that, then I become just this rabid taskmaster that never feels I'm doing enough that never is satisfied with my efforts and always feels that I'm falling behind. And the pack animal in me, if I don't check that, it becomes a people pleaser that always wants everybody to like me. And the planner, the part of me that wants to plan for the future and wants to be prepared, turns into a catastrophizer and a worrier that never learns how to quiet itself down. And the pleasure seeker in me that... If I don't check that, the part that just wants to watch Netflix and eat ice cream, that will, if I don't turn it off, gradually morph back into Josh the addict alcoholic. So the point is that uh, not only do these parts, if we don't learn to switch them off or explore different parts, uh, become dysregulated, but other parts of ourselves which are entirely valid and are so necessary to feel can be strangled and shunted aside to the point that they never develop any of the skills that are necessary for us to live fully rounded lives. For instance, if we have an intellectual part of us that we over-rely on we lose the ability to empathetically, emotionally connect with other people. And that is a huge shame. If we rely entirely on the pleasure seeker, then the part of us that can develop tolerance of difficult situations and unpleasant situations and can learn how to be resourceful doesn't develop. If I become over-reliant on the producer, then the part of me that enjoys just slacking off and doing nothing and lying in the sun and uh, just enjoying life for the sake of life without noting how much I'm getting done, that part of me is lost and shunted aside. So one thing that also can happen and you might have noticed it, I'm not going to assume that you have, but I've certainly found it on retreat, is that the same parts of me that become very dominant in my life over there in the world, I bring those parts, of course, here to the retreat. And very often those parts say, okay, I'm going to run the show here too as well. You know, the intellectual Josh, the know-it-all, the guy that has to always have a theory for everything, he's going to run this too. <laughs> he's going to run our retreat. And some of you might have the part of you that, you know, uh, the taskmaster that beats up on you, that tells you you're not doing enough, and you rely on that in the world to get up out of bed and get things done, and people like it because it's a workaholic, but then you get to a retreat, and maybe you can't put down that taskmaster. Maybe that little part of you that's going, oh, I'm not sitting right, and I'm not achieving enlightenment, and I'm not like, I, you know, Chris gave a great talk, but I don't have a fucking clue what I'm supposed to be doing, and <laughs> I'm completely lost here, and I have no concentration, I'm doing it wrong, and I am, you know, what's the matter with me? So, <laughs> what I... Uh, 
what I think part of the role of retreats are is not just to establish concentration and not just to establish mindfulness of, and being present, but to also use this opportunity for something else, which is now that we're here in this artificially beautiful, serene, you know, environment where none of us have our responsibilities of our day-to-day life, when none of us have those pesky social, you know, uh, interactions we have to deal with, where we are all essentially put into a Petri dish of, well, that's the wrong word, or we're all essentially, (laughs) we're all removed from our daily lives, why not use this as an opportunity to connect with those parts of us that our dominant sub-personalities say, no, you can't be goofy. You can't just be self-indulgent. You can't just be uh, sit around soaking in pleasure. You can't be the one that uh, cries. You can't be the one that gets angry. You can't be whatever that is. Fill it in, whatever you have abandoned, and see, reflect. How can I reconnect with these parts? Because all human beings have the same basic emotions. We all have angry, sad, frightened, disgusted, embarrassed, pride, joy. And if we're not feeling the full gamut of the human spectrum, we're going to feel there's something missing because we all had those emotions when we were children. We all had them. And if we leave something behind in this journey through adult life where we believe I can't be silly or I can't be spontaneous or I can't just skip one of the sits and just go out walking around or take a hike or go, you know, I can't just lie in the grass and soak up the experience. If we leave those parts behind, then we feel there's something missing in our life. What we feel as that missing part is the parts of us we have pushed aside and exiled. And this is the time where we can reconnect. So how do we do that? The first is to use the sits as a way to purposely bring up, at times, some of the most wounded feelings that we've, uh, we don't like to feel. And I've done this. And if you do this, what I recommend is finding the most comfortable place you can sit in the sun, where there's lots of self-soothing sensations, and bring up an image uh, or an experience that we don't like to remember and feel whatever needs to be felt and go into the entire body and mind and persona of the angry or the frightened or the sad. These parts are complete personalities. They have body states, they have breaths, they have goals, they want to survive, they have needs. And just 
Give them their moment. Give them their time to be felt, to be reconnected with. Two is I've found that to do this work, sometimes I have to develop allies for the exiled, wounded child, the parts of me that are the most vulnerable. Sometimes they need a friend to help them be felt. So, for instance, in my case, anger, which is for me the most difficult emotion or experience to uh, feel, I sometimes have to bring another part of me, the part that wants to befriend and be a people pleaser and wants to be a pack animal and just be friendly and get to know people. I summon that part and ask it to be there with the angry part of me so I can feel my anger. When, we, when I ask a dominant part of myself, a dominant feeling or tendency to, to step aside, I never say it's wrong or it's bad or it has to go away for good. I simply ask the intellectual Josh, the know-it-all Josh, the, the Josh that is given so much time in my normal life, I simply say to it, okay, you, you've done so much. I'm so grateful for you, but we're, I don't know why I'm talking to my hand. I'm just, I, you, show and tell. I don't know. I think you get it. But anyway, I ask it to, to take a seat to the side so that the other parts of me, the naive, goopy, goofy, silly, and spontaneous, angry, frustrated, whatever needs attention so that it can have its time. And it's very, very slow work because the dominant parts, they will keep coming back again and again. They will slip in the intellectual, the neurotic, the frightened, the planner, the scheduler, the person that can't let go of the iPhone and has to check in constantly, the irritated, the intolerant part that wants everybody just to go away because our needs have to be met and my needs are more important than anybody else's. And all that, those parts will keep coming back up again and again and again. So it requires enormous patience to reconnect with energies, feelings, and behaviors that we have left behind in the movements and the choices and the decisions we've made in our lives. Very often in retreats, I've found that the entire way I've scheduled and prioritized my life only meet a certain part of my needs and that there are entire other parts of me that are no longer fulfilled at all. About seven or eight years ago, I was on a retreat with Ajahn Suchito and I had the sudden realization that my work that was paying my bills was no longer uh, in any way, not only fulfilling, but it was actively wounding so many different parts of me. That it was meeting my needs for security and for comfort, but the, the parts of me that needed 
to feel that I mattered to other people, that I was doing something positive, the parts of me that felt that need, the need to be intellectually stimulated, the parts of me that needed to uh, achieve something in life, all of those were being essentially strangled by my decisions. I was simply prioritizing in my life the needs of the part of me that needed to be secure. And that had one out. And I used the retreat to see finally that I couldn't go back and live my life the way I had set it up. I had to change. I had to reprioritize because too many parts of me were not being taken into consideration. In a third thing we can do besides building alliances and connecting with the exiled parts of us that we don't like to feel is also we can learn to identify each of the different subparts while we're here. I find it extremely useful to begin to know the different subpersonalities that we experience through the course of our lives because when we know them by the way we feel in the body, by our goals, by the types of thoughts that each subpersonality has, by the types of uh, sense consciousness that each part has. When we get to know the different parts of ourselves, then we can orchestrate the mind like a conductor orchest uh, orchestrates an orchestra. <laughs> Damn. All right. Uh, <laughs> got to work on those sentences before they start spilling out. Um, so I know when I'm in the, uh, the intellectual, because the intellectual, when it's not checked enough, it's got this, hey, wait till you hear what I've got to say. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, just finish up, because you're not saying anything as interesting as what I'm about to say. <laughs> It's about to wait till you have. I'm going to turn your world upside down. Just <laughs> shut the hell up, because have I got something that's going to, you know? And when I'm in the planner, I'm I'm in this contracted small body that you know breathes like. <laughs> and so knowing all these parts now in life. I can, in certain situations, ask the dominant parts to step back. For instance, when I'm calling up some you know, company and I need to you know, check on some, something or whatever, I ask the intellectual know-it-all to take a break <laughs> so that the people-pleaser and the friendly you know, part of me can come up first. Because if I go in with the know-it-all, I've found that I don't really get much accomplished in a lot of situations. And finally, another role that we can develop in these retreats is awareness. If there is anything that could be considered almost a self. It's not really a self because it doesn't have the capability of acting in the world. But awareness, what we call here mindfulness, uh, that is the closest thing we have to a self and that it, it's always there. We sometimes, though, lose it 
into one of our sub-personalities or parts. So, for instance, at times in my life, my intellectual know-it-all part has become so dominant that it's swallowed up awareness and it's very difficult to extract awareness from that dominant part. Other times in my life when I've been a worrier, the worrier has completely consumed the awareness and swallowed it up. So in the concentration practice and the mindfulness practice, what we're capable of doing is separating that which observes life from all the different subparts that we move through in the course of our life. The part that worries about our relationships, the part that tries to plan the future, the part of us that narrates our life and turns it all into an autobiography, the part of us that wants to look good to other people, the part of us that just wants to consume ice cream and be left alone. If we can just separate awareness from those separate, those different parts, we can then begin to orchestrate the mind with even greater skill. Because it's very difficult to orchestrate the mind when awareness is sucked into one of the parts. It will go along with that part's agenda. If I'm in the uh, sensual pleasure-seeking Josh, I will prioritize and believe that I need to buy everything and right now. It will be very difficult for me to prioritize learn how to let go, learn how to be generous, learn how to connect with other people through kindness. So, to summarize, I would say that in addition to the work you're doing, if you want to experiment with anything I've talked about tonight, see if you can use some of the time here to explore the different qualities that you experience readily and you feel proud of, or that at least you easily move through. And then identify some of the parts that just come up when you desperately need to numb yourself. And finally, what are the parts that are absolutely missing, or that when we feel, we have to shut them off immediately? Do I have to shut off my anger, or my sadness, or my fear the moment it appears? And how can I use the practices to reconnect and to safely allow these experiences to appear and to be soft with them and to be gentle and to no longer relegate them to the shadows. And if I, you do this, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that when this is over and you return to the rest of your life, you will have gained something invaluable you will have brought something from this retreat into the rest of your life which will help you find purpose and meaning and a new way to prioritize your life. It's only by getting to know our different selves or parts that we can then begin to make the decisions that are not just fulfilling one small part's need but are actually far more authentic. So I thank you for listening. I hope there was something of value tucked in there. And uh, Cheryl will be back at uh, 8.30 to leave the meadow.